Hi, everyone, and welcome to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. And this is the first episode of the new year, and actually the first episode in a couple of months. I took a little hiatus to do the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart virtual conference for physical therapists. And now we are back with our regular programs uh, starting this week, and they, you'll get a new one. Uh, straight to the iTunes podcast page for Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart every Monday. So to start the year off, um, I thought it was appropriate to talk a little bit about pain science. It's something that I talk about a lot on the show. We've had tons of PTs come on and talk about neuroscience pain education. And then I also get a lot of people asking me, emailing tweets about how do you incorporate this neuroscience pain education into programs for your patients. How can we make it accessible? How can we ex really explain pain to our patients um, effectively and efficiently? And there's a physical therapist right here in New York City who is doing just that. He is Ilan Schneider. He is a physical therapist and, and a certified yoga instructor. He is the director of the Retrain Pain Program and a physical therapist at H&D Physical Therapy. He is an adjunct lecturer at SUNY Downstate Medical Center. He has uh, worked in, in the past at Costco as an on-site ergo consultant, injury prevention, and in-house workers' comp rehab. And he has given many pain lect education lectures to the community, physical therapy practices, medical practices, and TRIARC. And he has uh, helped to create the Retrain Pain Program at H&D Physical Therapy. So Ilan, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So like I said, a lot of people are always asking uh, how to incorporate pain education into the patient population. So let's sort of take it from your perspective and let's go back to what first interested, interested you in developing this new pain program. Okay, well, I'd like to go back maybe one step further, which is just what really got me interested in this whole pain world um, to start with. Um, I started in neuro outpatient at St. Charles Rehab, um, an amazing place. And um, just coming out of school, I thought everything was going to be very linear in my um, work with the patients. And I saw very quickly that especially with the patients with pain, things did not always go as expected. Um, you know, so, and sometimes even for the positive, a patient would come in with an injury and I would just think to myself, you know, how in the world am I going to get this patient better? And then they would just start doing so much better. And I would think, but I didn't really do anything. You know, how is it that they're improving? Um, and then, of course, on the other side, you know, sometimes people would come in with a very small injury and have tremendous pain. And even when we thought we did a really good job at treating what seemed like a very local small injury, um, the pain would remain and turn into a real um, life-changing situation. So I saw right away that there was something a little bit different with pain than I had really been, you know, exposed to previously. And I started to explore I've been very inspired and learned a lot from people like Dr. Mosley and Dr. Butler um, and some other books and people like Chris Main and Gordon Waddell and really began to learn that there is not only a whole other way of, um, of understanding pain, the neuroscience of pain, which you've talked a lot about, but there are actually some really good tools that have been developed for working with people with pain, particularly chronic pain or more complex pain conditions like complex regional pain syndrome and phantom limb pain, mm -hmm. and that maybe you know, a lot of what we were taught 
and what I was taught in, in physical therapy school was excellent for more straightforward orthopedic cases and neurological rehab, but in some of these more complex or chronic pain cases, um, something different needed to be done. And I started to really explore the whole biopsychosocial bio approach okay. and, and, uh, and learn a little bit more about that. That was kind of what inspired me um, to start in this path. And so what, so let's go into this retrain pain program. That's what everybody wants to know about. So talk to me about how this program was developed and then we'll kind of go into the steps that comprise the program. Okay, so, you know, right now there are some really great biopsychosocial pain programs that are out there that are multidisciplinary, but in my experience in researching them and looking into them, most of them are inpatient um, programs um, that are often very expensive and really require people to take, um, you know, a month off um, to go into these programs. And there is nothing um, that I found that's really available to the public that's truly, you know, biopsychosocial, that's truly really trying to address all the factors that influence pain for a person, and then also all the different aspects of life that are influenced by pain. So, you know, a patient may have pain symptoms, but they also might be dealing with a sleep issue, not be able to work, um, having um, difficulty with emotional wellness, functional issues, relationship issues. So there's so many pieces that pain impacts on, and I, I wanted to try to create a program that would address as many of those as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, as you've spoken about many times, there's many pieces that actually influence just the pain symptoms themselves. And then when someone's in pain for a long time, many of the different um, systems in the body that are involved in, you know, stress um, and sleep wakefulness and, and um, all these kind of response systems, they can also get thrown off. So we wanted to kind of work on all of those together. Yeah, and, you know, I think what was interesting is, how you talked about all different aspects of someone's life, emotional relationships, work-related. And, you know, all of those, it sort of makes a constant feedback loop so that not only does the pain affect that, but then that can go back in and affect the pain. Absolutely. And so you have this sort of constant roundabout loop that, you know, at some point you, there has to be an intervention to kind of break that up, to sort of break up that, uh, the constant input output scheme you know to kind of can we what can we do to change the inputs that the system is getting in order to change the output which is the is the pain and i think that that's a really good point and um it's actually very um although it can be difficult when you're first approaching a new you know complex case and you see all these different aspects that are involved and you're like i don't even know where to start you know mm -hmm. how can i help this patient with everything um what i found is that sometimes just helping on one of those levels mm -hmm. because they're all affecting each other sometimes just working on one of them and maybe the one that the patient's most open to working on um that can really help in all of the other ones as well because they are all wind up being related it's a lot of different doors that you can walk through and you know sometimes a patient is not interested in working on something in a certain area and so working on a different one um can influence the one that maybe they weren't interested in working on more directly. Right. And I think it's very important that you said, you know, start with what the patient is open to doing. You know, you have to, like you said, if it's, if they don't want to open that door, I don't think that you have to knock it down. I think it's good to start with the patient where they're at and find that way in. And once you find that way in, it can then open those other doors as time goes on. So I think that was a really great statement that you said to really kind of meet the patient sort of where they're at and, and allow them to allow you 
sort of into their into their life in a way that they're comfortable with because otherwise this stuff is is really tough absolutely and you know maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk more about a motivational interviewing but mm -hmm. one of the fundamental things with, um, that we start with a patient when we're using the approach of motivational interviewing is putting out a lot of choices and saying you know these are some different areas that some people have found helpful to work on you know what are you interested in talking about instead of having the agenda of knowing you know okay this is what we have to work on seeing what door like you said a patient's willing to open mm -hmm. and we're thinking of it like you know knocking before entering right. um, and seeing seeing what they're willing to to work on Right, right. Great, great point. And, and we will get that, uh, get to that a little bit later. Okay, so let's talk about the Retrain Pain Program at H&D Physical Therapy. Give me, give me the steps. Okay, so, so the first piece is, um, is doing an assessment. And, you know, patients are coming in either um, self-referred or referred from a physician. So we, we have to start a little bit from how they're coming in, you know, where they were beforehand. But basically... Um, you know, we want to get a sense of, of the symptoms, obviously, and do a good physical examination, um, pain mechanism classification to see what, you know, what's the main kind of driver to this situation. Mm -hmm. But then really important and a key thing that I think differentiates this program is really focusing on how the pain has impacted the patient. So really getting down to, you know, what's going on with their sleep, with their employment, with relationships, with emotional wellness, with function. And, um, and a lot of that, actually, we don't even need to always ask directly by just giving the patient the space to really give us the whole story. They have the time to really open up. It all comes out, and then we can see what we need to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, but really trying to figure out, number one, what's, what's involved in, in driving the situation, um, but also how it's impacting them so we can know how to focus the program and, and uh, customize it for them. Okay. And so that's your step one. So then, so you've interviewed the patient, you've done your initial assessment, you kind of have a feel of where they're at, what happens next? Okay, so that is actually going to really differ um, depending on the situation um, and seeing what the patient, you know, if a patient comes in and says, you know, I really feel like I need to exercise and this thing is going to move forward, so then that might be the first door that we start walking through and doing mm -hmm. some gentle exercise and then getting the other pieces in, but... Some of the things that I have in my mind that, that, I want, that I would like to be able to, to do with the patient is pain science education, which you have talked a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, but what we really want to focus on, you know, we've defined, let's say, five or six key you know, pieces of, um, of the pain science curriculum that's been developed that we think is most helpful and most meaningful for, um, for the patients. And really taking that to the next level of not just, okay, here's the information, but, you know, what does that mean for you? What do you make of this? You know, how is that going to influence you? And seeing how we can take that information into making it to something actionable for the patient and that it shouldn't just stay as, as interesting information. So pain science education, helping the patients understand the difference between tissue damage and pain can be very helpful because mm -hmm. it can help motivate them to take part in the program and not be as afraid that they're going to damage themselves, understanding the role of descending inhibition. You know, our brain, as has been discussed many times, you know, our brain can release these chemicals that can turn down the volume on nociception. Um, and there's so many things that the patients can do to activate that process. Mm -hmm. um, but if they don't know about that process, some of the treatments may seem strange. You know, why are we doing that? That doesn't do anything for my foot. Um, mm -hmm. But if they understand how different how pain processing works and all of these potentials to um, potential mechanisms of decreasing nociception of, of decreasing pain, also um, it opens up the doors for them to see the purpose of a lot of different types of treatments. So I think the education is crucial, and I don't think it needs to be done um, necessarily as like um, 
you know, a teacher and a student type of situation, but whatever you can jump into with the patient, you can start the conversation and slowly, you know, start helping some of these messages come across. And when you're doing your um, explain pain to the patients, are you using sort of multimedia uh, education tools? Like, are you just sort of, is it, I, and I suppose it depends on the patient, but is it sort of you're sitting down with them and giving them, let's say, a 10 or 15 minute explanation? Is it an hour? Do you show pictures? Do you have, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's a great question. And I, I don't have a, a perfect answer for it because it's always different. It's a tough question. And, and um, I think that sometimes it's just a conversation, you know, really mm -hmm. a back and forth, not a lecture. Um, sometimes you have a patient that really they want to know everything. They want to suck it up and, and, and you can just like, um, you can just go and go and go and you can tell them and they're interested and, they, and it, you know, and that's, that's great. Um, I've developed some PowerPoints that I use as like a, um, you know, to help me, you know, get some of the concepts across. Um, sometimes just a paper and a pen, drawing things out um, is helpful. And then sometimes giving people things like YouTube videos or other mm -hmm. resources that they can look into if they're interested. Um, but I think that the key thing is really trying to make it into a conversation um, and, and not to think of the patient as like a, an information receptacle of just like, okay, I just have to give them all of this info. They're like a passive recipient of it, mm -hmm. but like really talking to them about, you know, what do they want to know? What do they already know? And then giving them small pieces and then saying, okay, well, like, here's that piece of information. Does it make sense to them? And then, okay, well, what does that mean? Or how would that influence you? Or what, mm -hmm. you know, what, what would we do with that kind of information? Um, because I think that that's where sometimes things get lost. The patient gets the information, but it doesn't translate into any into anything actionable. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's actually s similar sometimes with therapists too. Um, therapists who may have been practicing a certain way, they hear some of the new neuroscience um, information and they get very inspired by it, um, but don't always bridge into actually integrating that into a change in practice in some way. Um, so I think it's important to kind of make that bridge. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's also, I like what you said, how the, the patient's just not this passive structure that's just soaking information in if they're soaking it in you know and I think it's it's because I a lot of times and I'm sure I've been guilty of this myself we sort of get off and you start explaining things and then you're like okay now we're going to do this instead of saying wait like let me take a step back and like it did that make an impact with this patient you know right. and it doesn't mean that you're sitting there and you're checking off okay tissue damage doesn't equal pain pain doesn't equal tissue damage check and next, check, check. You know, it's not a checklist. It's more of a conversation. And it's so and hard. And give and take. Yeah, and I think that it's really easy for us to go into the checklist mode. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to slow down, like break the autopilot mm -hmm. and check in, look at the patient. You know, what's happening? Are they sitting there passive? Do they look distracted? And you know, <laughs> Do they look like a deer in headlights? Like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So step one, you sort of, you, you do the explain pain thing in, in the... And obviously, depending on the patient and whatever form of learning is best for them, whether it be, like you said, videos, PowerPoints, worksheets, or, or conversation. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what happens next? Where do they go? What else is involved in the retrain pain? Okay. So um, just before I get into the next step, I just want to take a small step back and just mention that the way that the program is, is explained to the doctors who are referring their patients as well as to the patients is mm -hmm. that um, it's, a, it's a short program. Um, and the idea is not to have patients in therapy, like endless therapy, mm -hmm. um, but to come to this program for, let's say, six to ten sessions and to learn skills 
and, and things that they can do to take control of the situation. And so we never promise a patient that after six to 10 patients, they're going to be pain-free. But what we do tell patients is that after six to 10 sessions, they're going to hopefully really understand what's going on with the condition, mm-hmm. um, know the different options of things that they can do, and be comfortable in a whole bunch of skills um, that they can use in overcoming the pain, not necessarily making it disappear, mm-hmm. but being in control of the situation. So um, all the things that we're going to go through are really different, you know, skills that we're training the patient in rather than like treatments. So the next piece is um, is helping patients um, know a little bit more about the different options that are available to them. Um, a lot of people with chronic pain um, have told me that they're like on an endless search for the provider that's just going to fix it all. Yes. And, um, and I think that what can be helpful is to help patients, you know, shift from that perspective into there are a lot of different providers that can help in a different way. And how can they, you know, come up with a plan to utilize all the different wonderful things that different providers can offer and how that fits into the different pieces of their, of their problem. So instead of looking for one provider to fix everything, um, seeing what it is that each provider can provide and, um, and how that fits into like a mosaic of a, of a treatment. So helping patients make a plan, a big picture plan. And part of that is also understanding about medications, the role of medications, you know, what, how they're helpful, how they may not be the perfect solution, um, and the different types of medications so that when patients go back to their doctors, they can be more educated in what to ask about. Um, so that's kind of, you know, maybe step two is just mm-hmm. understanding all the different pieces that are available, medications, and, and, uh, and coming up with a big plan. Yeah. Great. And, you know, knowledge is power, right? So the more that the patient can kind of soak in and know about their condition, because a lot of people will come to PT and they have no idea what's going on because no one's ever sat them down and explained to them what's going on. Right. So to allow them, and I think it also helps maybe temper expectations, you know, so that like there's not a, a single sort of panacea for every single condition. And that it takes more than, like you said, one person to sort of wave their magic wand and fix chronic pain. Although there is some guy in upstate New York who has some sort of super sensitized hands through an esoteric form of kung fu that claims to to cure all pain. Okay, I have some referrals for him. (laughs) You know, so apparently there is someone out there. I I don't know who he is. I think he's called the pain whisperer. Okay. I, and I'm not making that up. I'm anyway, to look that up. Yeah, okay. look, look that one up. It's very interesting. Okay, so you've given this patient knowledge, um, and and then what's what happens next in the process? Okay, so I think that the next piece, um, it's really important for most pain conditions, is some sort of movement component, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that can take a few different. Um, forms. Um, I think classically, as a physical therapist, I've always been taught to really think of, okay, what's weak and what's tight? Um, that's probably what's causing the pain. And if we address the weakness and the tightness, um, you know, then everything is all, is all good. Um, I no longer, um, you know, have that perspective. Um, and so we're using a little bit of a different framework for doing um, exercise and movement. So there's different pieces to it. One piece is looking at the patient's regular activity already. So are they someone who has a boom-bust cycle, like they like to do stuff, but then they do too much, and then they're laid up mm-hmm. for two days with pain? Mm-hmm. And so they're going to need a very different type of movement program than someone who you know, has been laying in bed for two years. Sure. Um, and so I think we, we try to use like cognitive behavioral therapy principles of time-contingent um, 
pacing. Um, so coming up versus like symptom contingent pacing, meaning I, if I don't have pain, I do as much as I possibly can until right. I'm hurting. Um, or I wait until the pain is gone until for me to do anything. Um, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. Instead of that, we try to come up with reasonable goals. You know, would it be okay to do, you know, 30 seconds of standing today? Um, and then, you know, how about 45 seconds tomorrow? And coming up with a really clear plan, um, it could be just based on activity like stairs or sitting tolerance or standing tolerance or walking mm -hmm. tolerance. Um, or it might be more specific, you know, classic exercises. Um, also, we think about like fear. You know, are there certain movements that this person is afraid of? And what kind of program can we create to help guide them from what they're comfortable doing to maybe what they're more fearful of doing but that's mm -hmm. still safe and important for them. Mm -hmm. um, another perspective we take with exercise is thinking about endogenous analgesia. We now know that things like aerobic exercise, um, isometric exercise can, can get the um, body to actually decrease pain and it has nothing to do with the, with the the exercise itself, it's that the, or it's nothing to do with like a strength or stretching. It's more that the exercise um, causes some sort of neurological process to happen that decreases the perception of pain. Mm -hmm. And um, so we try to help people with that. So, for example, if someone has a very painful foot, it could be that doing certain arm exercises, either aerobically or strength exercises with their arms, will actually decrease pain in their foot. And, and it has nothing to do with being stronger. It's simply by doing those exercises, you don't feel the pain as much. Mm -hmm. um, so that can be like another piece that, we, um, that we'll do. Um, and then, of course, doing exercises that are focused on the affected body parts. So if they have a, a problematic ankle, so some exercises for their ankle. But we're very careful um, in how we frame it. And we frame it in these are exercises to help your ankle be healthy and be in the best shape as possible and not you have this pain because, you know, you're weak. Mm. Um, and, you know, we now know that actually pain <coughs> induces weakness by changes in the motor cortex. So, right. you know, there's like a whole chicken and egg thing, but we're very careful because we don't want people to, um, you know, to have, just stay in the whole biomechanical, biostructural model where, right. you know, th they think that every time they have pain, it's simply from like a tissue disruption. Right. And, and also, you know, I think having sort of a graded exercise program, I think also uh, helps to take away, and you mentioned it uh, briefly, uh, that sort of maybe fear avoidance behaviors that maybe, oh, I can't walk more than, you know, a half a block because then I'm going to have pain. Right. You know, so putting that person on, like you said, maybe today you walk one minute and then the next day you walk a little bit more and a little bit more. And so that way the brain, you take away the fear of the patient and then the brain does not have to send that alarm signal off like this is going to be bad. So, right. you know, you're able to accomplish some of these exercises, and maybe some of them are very easy, but it gives the patient, uh, it sort of decreases the fear for the patient and, and helps to decrease pain. We all know fear avoidance behaviors is, is, will uh, contribute to uh, chronic pain conditions. Right. So movement is, movement is key. You know, movement's very important. Um, and for some people, you know, with headaches, sometimes movement mm. is what induces the pain. That can be a little bit challenging. But yeah. for most people, um, a movement program is, is really is really key. Mm -hmm. And um, should I move on to the next piece? Yep, next okay. piece. Okay, next piece is um, looking at work. Um, and so this doesn't apply to everybody, but some people are not able to work um, sure. or they're not able to work as much as they want or they're not able to work in the capacity that they want to mm -hmm. work. Um, and you know, I've had the great fortune of working at Costco and being involved in many workers' comp cases um, and really 
being able to help people get back to work. And Costco has an amazing program that they've done, um, which I've, you know, utilized in my work with patients, which is pacing people's back to work, that people can come back to work in a partial capacity. Um, that makes a huge difference because um, people who have to just wait until they're completely better to do the exact job they were doing before, right. um, the longer they're out of work, the more difficult it takes to, it is to get back to work. So coming up with a plan, if it's possible, if an employer is flexible about it, um, of, you know, instead of coming back for, a tw- you know, an eight-hour day, you know, coming in for two hours or a half hour or maybe working in a different capacity, that can be really key in helping the patient know some of the options and having some ideas and maybe even working with the employer with the patient uh, can be very helpful. And then, of course, ergonomics of just helping people know how they can sit and use their body in a way that's less stressful on their body that maximizes efficiency and good blood flow. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're not, you know, sitting in one position for too long. But we're very careful with ergonomics not to increase fear avoidance behavior. Like, you know, if you lift the wrong way, well, then you know you're going to bust your discs again. Right, um, right. That, that that's less helpful and more just about you know really treating the body well and moving efficiently and not mm-hmm. stressing the tissues. But we try very hard not to reinforce you know more fear yeah, um, with the ergonomic principles. Very important to mention, and because you know I, I get a lot of people who say, well, you know. I know that I'm supposed to sit up really tall, and if I sit up like this and I'm like this all day, then I won't have pain. Like, it'll take my pain away, right? I'm like, um, (laughs) not really, but okay. I think it's more important to, you know, move. Like, you don't have to sit in one position all day long. Right. I think that's, that's one of the crazy. key things is about is about movement and not staying in one position and switching activities. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most helpful out of all the ergonomic, uh, you know, pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. Okay. So you've, they've got the knowledge, they've got the movement, you've addressed their work situation. Then okay. What? So the next piece is uh, mental techniques. And there are so many things that people can do um, to use their mind, um, cognitive techniques that can be helpful for decreasing pain. Some patients come in and they are thirsting to learn this stuff. Some people come in and they are like, there's like a big barrier and they have no interest. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you might think as a therapist that this may be really helpful for them and they're like, you know, kind of either weirded out by it or does that mean that my pain is not real? And so there are many different ways that we can try to, like, crack the door open a little mm-hmm. bit um, when it comes to mental techniques and cognitive techniques. And by the way, I should just mention what I'm talking about. Um, things like mindfulness, meditation, mm-hmm. um, classical relaxation techniques, maybe yoga breathing techniques, learning how to use uh, distraction techniques, right. self-hypnosis, <laughs> biofeedback. I mean, there's so many options. Um, but one of the ways that I, I try to present it to people who are initially not as interested is, um, you know, a lot of times people will, you know, they just want you to get rid of the pain. You know, they don't want to do these techniques. They just want to get rid of the pain. So I tell people sometimes that, you know, if there's a way that they can get rid of their pain, do that. That's better. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. if they ever find themselves in a situation where they've done everything they could, whether it was the medication, whether it was the exercise, whatever it was that they tried, and they're still stuck, um, these techniques can be very helpful to decreasing uh, emotional distress and just the distress of that moment. And they, can, they may not necessarily make the pain disappear, but they can take the edge off of it and they can keep you, you know, kind of standing tall even in the face of the pain. Um, but I do think that for most of these techniques to really get the benefit, they need to be practiced on a somewhat of a regular schedule. And I think mm-hmm. that in particular for the mindfulness meditation, um, you know, some schools, um, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, who has done such amazing work in bringing mindfulness meditation into the healthcare setting, um, I think that they ask a lot of patients. And I think that they're probably right in that, you know, 
you know, doing it for 45 minutes a day, six days a week is probably really good. Um, but most of the patients that I work with are just not open to that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that starting small is really important. And I try to get people on, you know, doing two minutes a day, working up to three minutes and maybe eventually up to 20 minutes, but in mm-hmm. a very slow and gradual process. And um, I think that can be really helpful. So there's a lot of techniques that can be used. I will just also mention distraction uh, can be very helpful. And that's not you know, that doesn't feel new agey or, you know, out of the box for people, but just using different distraction techniques and specifically helping people find ways to use active distraction. So passive distraction is just where you zone out into something else, but an active distraction where there could be using working memory um, or listening to a song and trying to pick out certain notes or thinking of uh, something very specific mm. where you're mm-hmm. using certain cognitive processes that can be very helpful, at least in the moment, to decreasing pain. So these these techniques are really good for the toolbox for a person for long-term management of Mm -hmm. uh, pain. Mm -hmm. Okay. So mental tech, and and just to be clear, I'm glad that you sort of went into more detail with mental techniques. It doesn't mean that we're becoming psychiatrists or psychologists. Right. I I don't, I mean, I, you know, might want to call them mind-body techniques. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm really trying to do with this program is really keep it grounded in, in science and, and evidence and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that when we start using language like mind-body, um, some people really relate to that and they mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. And other people, it all of a sudden starts putting up walls of, is this alternative medicine? Right. Is this? And, and yeah, like these things really, really work. And so I'm trying to take a very like kind of science perspective on it so that as many people will feel comfortable and open to it. And specifically when I talk to the physicians that they should feel comfortable sure. and know that what we're doing is science-based, evidence-based and... Um, is not too out there. Yeah, and you know, there's also uh, a woman, I think at Harvard, Sarah Lazar, I think she's at Harvard. She's done a lot of really great research into meditation and mindfulness and things like that. Very, you know, science-based stuff. So if people were interested in even learning more about um, how meditation affects the brain, that's what a lot of her research is. Is that right? Sarah Lazar? I think so, yeah. I think she has two two excellent YouTube videos. Um, One, I think, is a TED lecture, and the other one is a lecture at a a college. But um, there's been an explosion in the amount of research on mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I just actually read a review that just came out this month, um, last night. And, you know, it's not perfect. It doesn't make all pain go away for all people. But it can be an extremely, extremely helpful tool. And they have found it to be most helpful with pain, anxiety, and depression. Those seem to be the things that are most helped by it. Yeah. So. Great. So obviously a really great thing to kind of add into this program. Okay. What, what else do we have? <laughs> okay. So the next piece is, um, <coughs> is if it's relevant, um, some people who are dealing with a lot of pain or dealing with pain for a, lot of, a long time um, have difficulties in their relationships, particularly with like a partner um, at home. And it can manifest in different ways. Sometimes you have a partner who is very antagonistic um, or skeptical. You know, maybe there's not a lot coming up on the MRI scans. And so it's mm-hmm. almost hard to believe the patient that they're really in pain. Mm-hmm. And there can be obviously a lot of frustration and difficulty. So one way we can try to help with that because we don't do therapy. But one way we, one way we can be helpful is by having the partner come in and explaining pain to the partner mm-hmm. so that they can understand a little bit more about what's happening um, and that the pain is real and, you know, 
why you can't always see pain and the difference between tissue damage and pain. So that can be one piece that's helpful. Uh, on the flip side, sometimes you can have a partner who's overly helpful and they want to do everything for their spouse and they're, they give so much attention to the pain and um, that also may not always be the optimal approach and helping um, either talking to the patient and telling them some of these tips or talking directly with the partner, but knowing how they can help pace their partner back to function. So instead mm -hmm. of doing everything for them, figuring out ways that they can help the um, the person in pain, you know, slowly um, and gradually start to do more and more um, learning how to help distract the partner when they're having a really painful experience. Maybe instead of increasing attention to pain, which tends to actually increase pain mm -hmm. in, in most studies, um, learning how to you know, acknowledge it uh, and be empathetic, but at the same time shift focus and distract, um, those can be very, very helpful things. So just helping people deal with that. Also, sometimes just talking to people with uh, chronic pain about ways that are more helpful or less helpful in the way that they speak about their pain mm -hmm. um, to other people. There's been some interesting studies about that as well. Um, so those are some of the ways we try to help on the social um, level. Social level, great. And then what about function? What about function? Is so that totally. Next? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's. I mean, part of that is is back to like the pacing and the exercise. You know, mm -hmm. figuring out if the person is having trouble walking um, or stair climbing or sitting or whatever it is the functional that they want to be doing. So then that that would be part of it there. But also, you know, sometimes people have hobbies um, that or other life activities that they like doing that have just can completely put on hold um, mm -hmm. for the pain situation. And so one of the things sometimes I ask people is, you know, if this pain went away tomorrow, what is it you would want to do? Hmm. And to get a sense of like, what is it that they wish their life was like? Mm -hmm. And then seeing if there's any way that we can actually do that, even with the pain. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, people are waiting for the pain to disappear when they actually could start doing some of those things already. And that would help with just general life enjoyment, happiness, joyful living, mm -hmm. active living, um, even with the pain. And actually getting involved in things that you like to do tends to decrease pain. It's distracting. And when you're enjoying painting and you're distracted by it, mm -hmm. um, you may not be paying attention to or feeling pain as much. Um, so that can be very helpful. Yep, absolutely. And then what about sleep? Sleep. Okay, so sleep is an interesting area. Um, there's a ton of research about the, you know, how pain you know, obviously interferes with sleep and then decreased sleep increases pain sensitivity. So you can have a, a nasty cycle there. So I think one piece, if it's really a problem, is that the patient is in, you know, has a good sleep physician who's managing it, mm -hmm. whether it's medicine um, or other things that need to be addressed. That's one piece. Um, sleep hygiene is another, giving people all sorts of tips about what tends to be helpful to do before bed um, to, you know, be helpful with sleep, what types of things tend to be less helpful, getting on like a steady sleep schedule, avoiding naps. There's a ton a ton of different things that people can do, which tend to be helpful. Nothing is perfect. Um, but then also something that I like to teach people um, to do is what to do when they're up at night and they're just like ruminating and can't sleep. Mm -hmm. um, there's some self-hypnosis techniques that tend to be very helpful. Mindfulness meditation, that can be a great time to do a body scan. Um, so giving people tools either for, you know, usually I see people have one or both of these two problems. One is falling asleep mm -hmm. and the other is staying asleep. And so there's different suggestions that may be helpful for those two different types of, of problems. Um, but I think that that's a great place where relaxation, mindfulness, meditation, self-hypnosis can be, um, as well as just what to do and not do before sleep um, that, that all are helpful. Of course, medication if necessary as right. well. Right. And I mean, you know, this sounds like a really all-encompassing program. And I think it's 
important, and I'm glad that you came on today, to kind of let people know how you can take these pain principles and understanding pain, the neuroscience behind pain, and really make it applicable to a wide variety of people. Right. You know, and I think that's very important, and, and I think you have a, uh, a, good, a good thing here. Where, if people wanted to find out more about this program, how could they do that? So we have a website, retrainpain.com, okay. um, on the Internet, and that's, uh, this is a special program of H&D Physical Therapy. The H&D website's hdphysicaltherapy.com. And um, I just wanted to, before we, we, mm -hmm. we completely finish with the program, I just also wanted to mention that um, we're also doing some of the neuroplasticity approaches like tactile discrimination training mm -hmm. and graded motor imagery, um, although we generally limit that to certain um, populations like phantom limb pain, mm -hmm. complex regional pain syndrome, um, and, and uh, as well as teaching people things like self-massage and TENS and, and other things that people can do um, to help themselves. Right. Sure. And we do it, we do it um, usually, the sessions are all one-on-one -on -one for about 45 to 60 minutes. Um, we try to run through the program in six to ten sessions, depending on what a patient needs, but we're always there for further coaching. Uh, when possible, we try to follow up with people on, um, on the email or on the phone to make sure that, you know, people are able to integrate these, these, um, these skills into their life and to, mm -hmm. to find out about any problems early on. And we're also in the process of developing a lot of internet internet-based tools that people can use um, with the program. And I think that another piece that's really important is that when patients finish the program, that they get plugged into something that's more long-term, whether it's an exercise class or a personal trainer or a massage therapist or social activities, hobbies, whatever, that um, people don't just leave and then kind of like fall off right. um, all the momentum that we, they build. We want to kind of increase motivation, increase the momentum, give some tools, and then help plug people into a long-term plan. And I think that that's very important as well. Absolutely. So go figure. You're making the patient into an independent person, not dependent on PT or, or doctors or whatever for the rest of their life, hopefully. Absolutely. Great. Great. Well, it sounds like a great program. And again, if you want more information, you can go to www.retrainpain, all one word, dot com. Okay, so let's go now. We're going to sort of switch gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about uh, motivational interviewing. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't know if a lot of people know what motivational interviewing is, so why don't you please give us a brief summary? Okay, so motivational interviewing is basically a set of, of techniques and an approach in how to have productive conversations about behavior change um, in regards to health is, you know, what we're dealing with. So it was developed in the 80s to help people um, who were dealing with addiction. Um, in the 1990s, it started to be used for chronic disease um, control. And basically, mm -hmm. the idea is that in many chronic conditions, the key things that are important um, involve health behavior change. And some people will come in, you know, and they're super motivated. They just want to know what to do. You tell them and they run out and do it. Mm -hmm. But there are many other people who are very ambivalent. And, um, and motivational interviewing is, is, um, is an approach to helping people who are ambivalent about health behavior change you know, move in a positive uh, direction. And um, it's, it's, it's been really helpful. And I think that, you know, you know one of the things that uh, I, if you had to kind of summarize it in one sentence, it's, it's a guiding style. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in contrast to a directing style where you would like tell a patient what it is that they need to do, um, in motivational interviewing, it's like you're a tour guide. So you wouldn't just take people somewhere. You would ask them, you know, what types of things do you want to see? Um, what are you interested in? And then, you know, in my expertise, these are some of the things that may fit into that. But it's really, it's a collaborative um, process um, versus just like telling a patient what to do. 
Okay. And how does this tie in to people with pain, chronic pain? Especially? Okay. So, so as you know, we were just talking about in the retrain pain program, the whole principle or the whole kind of idea of the retrain pain program is that there are certain behaviors or certain skills and tools that, that tend to be helpful for managing a pain condition and that I as a therapist cannot save the patient. I can't rescue them, but I can teach them tools that are helpful for them. But ultimately, it's up to them um, to actually do the things um, that, that we're teaching them. Mm -hmm. And so working with the patient um, in a collaborative you know, way to figure out, okay, what motivates them? What are they interested in? What are their goals? And how can we connect their goals and motivations and aspirations into these specific health behaviors? Because it's their motivations is what's really going to push them forward, not my ideas. Okay, and so let's say what what is the approach? You know, okay. are there principles that one needs to follow, and you know, okay, so how, that, how does this work? So I think that there are like four basic uh, principles, which are that um, number one, it's collaborative, as I mentioned, and you've spoken mm -hmm. and others have spoken about you know the interactor versus the operator, mm -hmm. and I think that that's really important to keep in mind that you know you're working with the patient, you're not like working on the patient, um, and ultimately they need to make the changes, so it's a collaborative process. And this mindset takes so much stress off of the therapist. And I think that a lot of times people burn out when they're working with patients yeah. with chronic pain because they take the burden on themselves to mm -hmm. make the patient change. And here it's knowing that only the patient themselves can change and you're working together as like a, as a coach. Um, it takes a little bit of the burden off of you even though you're just as caring. Um, so I think that collaboration is key. Uh, number two is, is um, it's evocative. What you're trying to do is you're trying to draw out from the patient to evoke from them what they're interested in and then connect those interests to the health, um, to the health behaviors. The next piece is you have to honor um, autonomy. You basically give the patient the space to not change, and sometimes it's specifically giving that space that's what allows certain people to change, um, to make the changes. There's no pressure. Um, they, have, you know, they can totally you know, not do anything, and they have complete space to do that. And then the last piece is patience, knowing that change unfolds slowly over time and not looking always for the breakthrough in that specific session, but planting seeds and knowing that and that the change can take place over time. And in motivational interviewing, the principles can be remembered with an acronym, which is RULE, like the rule. Mm -hmm. um, number one, you want to resist the writing reflex. The writing reflex is the tendency to jump in and tell a patient what to do. Um, so you want to hold that back. Um, the U from RULE is understanding and exploring their motivations. The L is for listening with empathy, um, attention, acceptance, non-judgmental, very much like a mindfulness meditation type of approach I mean, how we listen. And then the E in rule is for empowering, encouraging hope and optimism, even for small changes. Okay. And what, let's say, um, let's get to something a little more practical. So let's okay. say, you know, you're interviewing me using this motivational interviewing technique. What are some practical tips that you can give to a therapist if they're inter when they're interviewing their patient? Okay, so basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the patient to be talking about change instead of telling the patient to change and hearing them argue against it, which mm -hmm. actually strengthens how much they don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, we want to hear them argue for change. So we want to ask questions that are going to elicit what's called change talk. And there's different types of change talk. Some types of change talk um, reflects that the patient is considering making a change. Um, like, I want to be able to play with my grandchildren. So that reflects a desire of something that they want. Or, you know, I think I could exercise 
exercise a few minutes a day. So they're talking about their ability or their reasons or I need to get back to work. So you want to hear those types of things like they're, 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 they, there's a reason for change. And when you hear that, um, there's specific questions, which I'll get to in a minute, which can help elicit that. But when you hear that, you want to just help the patient elaborate on it. And the more you get them talking about that, the more they tend to move in a positive direction. So there's mm-hmm. There's change talk where they're thinking about changing, um, and then there's change talk where you really hear that they're committed to change, like, I'm going to do this, or I think I'm going to do this, obviously, two different levels of commitment, um, and then action, that they've actually taken action. Um, and, you know, sometimes when someone says, you know, well, I started, you know, I did 10 seconds of exercise, you know, you might think to jump in 10 seconds, you know, that's nothing, but, you know, really encouraging what they've done. So some of the questions that, that are helpful, um, first of all, is, um, is we mentioned this before, figuring out the right topic of, you know, I might think that this patient needs to exercise, but they may be more interested in cognitive techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of like laying out a whole bunch of choices and allowing them to pick the behavior that they would like to talk about first is very important instead of just jumping in on what you think is the most important thing. I think that's number one. Uh, And then once they're on it, asking questions like, why would you want to make this change? Or if you decided you were going to do it, you know, what would be some ways that you would go about it? Or how important it is to you? Or, you know, um, what are you already doing in this area? But just to get them talking in a positive way about it, that's really the key of the questions. And if you know that the answers are in the patient already for health behavior change, um, you can just come up with more and more questions to try to draw it out. The idea is that when it comes to health behavior change, the, the only person who has the answers are the patient because they know what's going to work for them. Um, you can tell them what's worked for other people, but you really want to get them talking about what's worked for them in the past or what they think will work for them. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, does it matter? I know um, we sort of discussed before uh, some different questions in motivational interviewing. So, so how do we ask the questions? How do we listen? How do we inform? So can you speak a little bit to, to that? So okay, how do so- we ask? How do you ask the question? So, you know, as I just, uh, you know, some of the questions that I just mentioned would be ways that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of different specific techniques in motivational interviewing and, um, you know, we can't go into all of them, but uh, for an example, um, let's say someone's ambivalent, you can ask them to kind of talk about the pros and cons of the change and specifically having them talk about the disadvantages first, the cons, the reasons why they wouldn't want to change because they'll get that out of the way, um, and then they don't feel like they need to use that later on to argue against, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to argue why they don't need to change because it's already out there. So let them kind of voice all of that first and then say, okay, and then what would be the advantages and having them, you know, just elaborate more and more on the reasons that they'd want to do it. Um, sometimes talking hypothetically, you know, if a patient's not ready, you know, well, if at some point you thought you would be ready, what would be some ways that, you know, you would be successful in it? Just to kind of get them talking uh, more and more about what would right. work for them, I think. Is, and what uh, happens if you if you get the I don't know, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so, so I don't I don't care. I don't yeah. know. Because <laughs> I think that so happens, that can, you know. It's realistic. Uh, unfortunately, it does happen. Um, and so I think that when you get to the I don't know, um, you might have hit a block where you're not really talking about what's important to the patient, um, and maybe stepping back and thinking about the agenda setting and what is that they want to talk about, um, just getting them talking more and more, you know, well, you know, there's got to be another topic or something else that you can get them passionate and talking about. Got it. Um, and just thinking in that way, what can I do to get this patient talking about something um, that's meaningful to them, something about what they're interested in, even if it's unrelated to you know, what you think may be unrelated to where you're going, because um, that's going to ultimately be what you want to tie in. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, and I think what you were talking about, you know, is, you know, really encountering resistance. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the resistance is more passive. Sometimes the resistance is a little bit more intense and in your face. Um, And instead of kind of like fighting against the resistance and winding up almost like in an argument with the patient, which Mm -hmm. is never a place you want to be. Right. reflecting the resistance so just restating it you know so that they know that you heard it where you're not pushing back against it but you're just reflecting what they say Um, sometimes that can you know after you reflect it they know that you've heard it and then you wait it's amazing sometimes all of a sudden they'll start talking about you know the other side of it as well Mm. Um, and and you can go with that and then the other really important piece about listening is um, is thinking about it this way everything that they're talking is like a field and all the reasons why they shouldn't change are like weeds and everything that they're saying that's positive about change that they've made or that they want to make is like a flower. And you want to think about all those flowers. And when they're finished talking, you want to reflect back to them all those things that they said, all of those flowers, like it's a bouquet. Mm-hmm. You show it back to the patient and you just reflect back everything they said so that they can hear it. And once you've, you've gotten to that point, um, you then can ask questions like, okay, so what's next? Where does that leave us? You know, what would you like to do now about that? And try to shift the conversation into more of like a, a commitment. You know, what are you going to do? What are you prepared to do about that? Not in a pushy way, mm-hmm. but just kind of like moving the conversation to the next piece. And then wherever they take that, even if it's a small step or no step, um, you encourage, you empower. And if you need to, you go back to the beginning of asking more questions to elicit more about their dreams, motivations, aspirations. Um, and so that's kind of the process in, okay. as, as an overview. Great, great. And I think, what if someone wanted to learn more about motivational interviewing? Is there any place? I know, I think there's motivationalinterviewing.com. Yeah, so there is, and I have to say that the site is... Motivationalinterview.org. So some of the sites are excellent, but what I've noticed in some of the literature is that Mm -hmm. there's been some changes, Mm -hmm. and the book that I found to be most helpful um, is called Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, and it's by Rolnick and Milner, I think, or Miller, and um, the book is fantastic. It's one of the best books I've ever read, um, and it's really really helped in making um, working with patients uh, a lot easier and more comfortable and enjoyable. Great. Yeah, I'm just... Yep, motivational interviewing in healthcare. Yes, by uh, Rolnick and Miller. Yes, Rolnick and Miller. Stephen Rolnick, uh, William Miller, and Christopher Butler. Yep. So, and you can get it on Amazon for twenty seven ninety five. So there you go. So if anyone wanted more information on motivational interviewing, it's a uh, Apparently a great book, and it's by Stephen Rolnick and William Miller. So perfect. All right, so unfortunately we have just about run out of time. But um, where if someone wanted to get in touch with you, if they had any specific questions, let's say about the program or about some of the things that you're doing, where can they... Find you. So they can they can find me through the retrainpain.com website. There's a little information submission form and that will come right to my email box. Okay. Uh, or my email is Elon E L A N P T, like physical therapist uh-huh. at gmail.com. Great. Well thank you so much for coming on. I think you've got a great program here. I look forward to see what what is happening with this program in like a year from now. Um, Thanks so I'm much sure for having me. I really successful. appreciate it. Anytime, anytime. So uh, again, everyone, thank you for tuning in for the first episode of the year, and we'll be back next week with new episodes. So thank you so much and have a great day.